Good afternoon. It's Monday the 23rd of November 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott. David, of course, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Vaccines. Fantastic news, yep. Brian, if anybody can get past my sarcasm, <laughs> uh, because uh, this is Matt Hancock on Twitter this morning. Very encouraging news about Oxford slash AstraZeneca vaccine. Not there yet, but good progress being made. Um, well, uh, AstraZeneca pushed out a, a press release on their website, AZD1222 vaccine met primary efficacy endpoint in preventing COVID-19. So they're saying that positive high level results from an interim analysis of clinical trials uh, in the UK and Brazil showed the vaccine was highly effective in preventing COVID-19, the primary endpoint, and no hospitalizations or severe cases of the disease disease were reported in participants receiving the vaccine. So nobody ended up in hospital, they claim, uh, with COVID-19 and nobody ended up uh, uh, with severe case of COVID-19. Uh, they went on to say this, uh, an independent data safety, safety monitoring board determined that the analysis met its primary endpoint showing protection from COVID-19 occurring 14 days or more after receiving two doses of the vaccine. No serious safety events related to the vaccine have been confirmed. Now, of course, we know that the trial was stopped for a period because there was a serious safety event uh, in Brazil, uh, but that apparently has not been confirmed to have been related to the vaccine. And so they're pressing ahead regardless. Right. Do, uh, do we know how many people were given this um, vaccine, Mike? Uh, just uh, out of curiosity, because I, I haven't easily seen an overall figure in the reports. Uh, no, uh, I don't have that data to hand. The AstraZeneca said that they will now immediately prepare regulatory submission for the data uh, of the data to authorities around the world that have a framework in place for conditional or early approval. Uh, the company will seek an emergency use listing from the World Health Organization for an accelerated pathway to vaccine availability in low-income countries. In parallel, uh, the full analysis of the interim results is being submitted for publication in a peer-reviewed journal. Um, well, it didn't end there because, well, actually, this was a couple of days ago, Saturday, I think, uh, Matt Hancock uh, tweeted this out. If approved by, because this is about the Pfizer vaccine, if approved by the independent MHRA, Brian, uh, we will begin rolling out the Pfizer uh, vaccine from next month. Uh, thank you to everyone who played their part in to defeat coronavirus. We will get through this together. And uh, the change in typeface there was his. Uh, now, I just wanted to briefly, uh, because we don't have time to go into this in massive detail, but just briefly uh, look at whether or just how independent the MHRA is. So let's just look at the register of interests. And Stephen Lightfoot, of course, is the chairman. Um, and he seems to have shares in uh, uh, GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, and uh, he's non-executive director for uh, Sussex Primary Care uh, and so on. Uh, but before joining the board, uh, he had a 30-year career in life sciences industry uh, and uh, he was involved with GE Healthcare. Uh, he was also Daichi Sankyo and commercial director, uh, director at uh, UK pharmacal, pharmaceutical and medical device business, uh, Scaring Healthcare. So career in the business, but he's independent. Uh, we scroll on down there, we see... Uh, various people involved with the World Health Organization, Dr. June Rain. Um, if we look at the next page, uh, Amanda Calvert, well, she seems to have shares in AstraZeneca. Oh, right. well, those will those be independent shares, Mike. Uh, well, independent too. shares, but she also had an independent 20-year career with AstraZeneca, 28-year yeah, career. So, so that won't affect her decision-making process in any way, shape, or form, her career or the shareholders, or the shareholding. Um, and... Uh, uh, what else have we got there? Uh, various, well, people involved with the uh, National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, which of course decides which, uh, which pharmaceuticals go into the NHS. Uh, we've got another person, uh, Anne Tony Rogers, uh, who's also got shares in AstraZeneca. So those will be independent shares as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so it goes on. So this is uh, Professor Liam Smith. Uh, and uh, he has, is getting research money from the Medical Research Council, UK Research and Innovation, Welcome Trust, 
Uh, British Heart Foundation, GlaxoSmithKline. Yeah. Um, so, and he's also involved with the uh, National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, which decides which medicines go into the NHS. So just I just wanted to briefly highlight just how independent the MHRA is, uh, because, of course, they are going to be making the independent decision on whether to give early approval to both the Pfizer and the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, my understanding is that the AstraZeneca vaccine um, has been paid for to the tune of 100 million doses uh, so far. So it doesn't really matter whether they get uh, uh, approval or not. They're getting their money. Uh, but I think the the early or the advance approval or the early approval is pretty much a done deal. Uh, David, uh, maybe we just welcome to the program and ask you for your thoughts on this. One of the consistent problems uh, with vaccine safety has been the fact that the regulators are the vaccine manufacturers wearing lab coats. Um, the the uh, degree of conflicts of interest, sometimes disclosed, sometimes undisclosed, are, are legion. Um, that list there uh, pales into insignificance uh, with what we see in the uh, FDA in America and their links to uh, the industry they're meant to regulate. Yeah, so it's a scam. What we're looking at is a scam, isn't it? Uh, I'll just add that we've got to remember, of course, that the uh, the uh, pharmaceutical companies have asked for immunity from prosecution. So should something go wrong with their vaccines, they're going to be uh, protected. I was told over the weekend, I'm still following it through, but I'm pretty sure it's true that uh, GPs now in this country are also asking for protection. So they're going to be paid um, to give those two shots of vaccine. That's going to be very, very uh, big income for GPs, but they're also asking for protection uh, from the public should anything go wrong. Um, I am going to be very surprised if GP surgeries can actually cope with the, I'm sure they're going to have a part to play, but I'm going yeah. to be surprised if they can cope with the, the uh, load if there's going to be 100 million doses. Not a problem, Mike, because the GPs are already being told that uh, they're going to uh, leave other health-related work in order to focus on the vaccines. So everything's going to stop for the vaccines. Uh, and of course, that's exactly what happened in April, and that resulted in 40,000 extra deaths. That's correct. And I can already um, say to people that in, in Plymouth, we know there are cases of people going to doctors because of very, very serious life-threatening ailments, and the doctors are simply not responding. But at the moment, the payments are there for the vaccines. You're going to see all of those GPs rushing back into activity. And I've seen it in my own local area where GP surgeries are putting up banners to get elderly people in particular in for their vaccines, phoning houses, inviting people in for their vaccines. So this is big money, huge amounts of money for the GPs potentially. But nonetheless, they're concerned enough that they're also wanting immunity? Well, of course. Right. Because they're independent. Okay. Well, uh, David, <laughs> yes, David, let's uh, come to Forbes then. And the headline is uh, uh, COVID-19 vaccine protocols reveal that trials are designed to succeed. Yes, this is an article uh, starting to highlight uh, concerns over the vaccine protocols dating from September. Uh, William Hazeltine here writing in Forbes um, is, is praising the, the Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson um, for publicising their vaccine trial protocols. He writes, this unusually transparent action during a major drug trial deserves praise. Close inspection of the protocols raises surprising concerns. These trials seem designed to prove the vaccines work, even if the measured effects are minimal. And he goes on, uh, prevention of infection must be a critical endpoint. Any vaccine trial should include regular antigen testing every three days to test contagiousness to pick up early signs of infection, and PRC testing once a week to confirm infection by SARS-CoV-2, uh, test the ability of the vaccines to stave off infection. Prevention of infection is not a criteria for success for any of these vaccines. And he goes on to say the vaccines are not expected to prevent infection, only modify symptoms of those infected. So this was, a, this was the first indication that, that all was not well. This information came out and it was questioned here by Forbes. It was also questioned the following month in October in the British Medical Journal. 
um, who have been increasingly excellent on uh, all COVID-related matters. So they're writing here in, a, in an editorial, a rare opportunity for public scrutiny of these key trials. Um, they, they comment uh, on the, the protocols. We may not like what we read, uh, but with real-time sharing of full protocols comes an unprecedented space for translating critique into action to improve trial design midstream. And there is much to critique. The first question is whether the right endpoints have been studied. Contrary to prevailing assumptions, including those of the former uh, uh, Food and Drug Administration Commissioner, none of the vaccine trials are designed to detect a significant reduction in hospital admissions, admissions to intensive care or death. Rather than studying severe disease, these mega-trials are also a primary endpoint of symptomatic COVID-19, of essentially any severity, lab positive uh, result plus mild symptoms such as a cough or a fever count as an outcome event. These studies seem designed to answer the easiest question in the least amount of time, not the most cl clinically relevant questions. And uh, very interestingly, in following on from what Brian was saying about encouraging the elderly to have flu vaccines, um, the BMJ writes, 60 years after the influenza vaccine became routinely recommended for people aged 65 or older in the US, we still do not know if vaccine lowers mortality. Randomised trials without, with, with this outcome have never been done. Observational studies with results in both directions can be cited, but without definitive randomised evidence, the debate will go on. Unless we act now, we, will, we risk repeating the sorry state of affairs with COVID-19 vaccines. So again, that, that's October uh, this year, the BMJ raising concerns. So have any of those concerns been answered? I'm not sure that they have. Um, and this is the sort of information we need from uh, Matt Hancock, amongst others. If he's going to celebrate uh, the, the progress on vaccines, he needs to be very specific as to what exactly he's celebrating. Um, do you think he can be specific? I'm not sure. There's, there's, there's not been any accuracy or precision in anything that's come from the government all the way along, or indeed from academia. It's been uh, a constant stream of, of changes of story um, to initiate the appropriate um, psychological response in the public. And that seems to be the motivation. It's... Uh, uh, like grooming, it's like uh, domestic abuse, as we're going to shortly have an article in the column uh, from uh, Dr. Bruce Scott examining the similarities between the two, and they're very striking. Um, it doesn't seem to be based on precision and clarity, uh, but let's hope we can get some. Um, well, okay. Uh, now, in the meantime, of course, uh, we're busy driving forward with uh, uh, lockdowns and threats of lockdowns. We'll be covering that a little bit later. Uh, but I just wanted to put this up because, of course, while this threat of lockdown is over our heads, um, they are, the narratives in the mainstream press are continu continuing to uh, push for uh, not only vaccines, but also to shill for the companies that are wanting to sell uh, immunity passports. So this is a Telegraph exclusive. exclusive. Uh, two COVID tests a week could win people a freedom pass. Uh, and that was echoed in the uh, Daily Mail. Britons who test negative for COVID twice a week are set to receive a freedom pass under government scheme that will allow them to live a normal life. Um, so what are they talking about? Uh, it's hoped the scheme could allow Britons to go back to a relatively normal life. To earn the freedom pass, people will need to be tested regularly and provided the, uh, uh, the results come back negative, they will then be given a letter, card or document they can show to people as they move around. The certificate uh, would be stored on a phone, according to sources, and would allow people to live a relatively normal life until the government's vaccination program gets up to speed. Uh, it would even allow Britons, this, you get this, Brian, this, you'll, you'll love this, it would even allow Britons to get away without wearing a mask, it's thought, and visit friends and family without the need to socially distance. Well, I'm, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling substantially uplifted. My whole mood has changed at uh, that report, Mike. I think it's outstanding. Uh, what a shame that uh, Daniel Hussain, who's the journalist who wrote it, didn't hop across to talk to some of the other Daily Mail team that are reporting what's happened when they've criticised some of the government's 
um, information, but uh, we'll come on to that in a minute. Um, right, we'll, we'll come back to COVID later on in the programme, but we want to move on to this. Uh, this is uh, Ofcom, uh, and they have published a, a consultation uh, regulating video sharing platforms, a guide to the new requirements on video sharing platforms and Ofcom's approach to regulation. Now, of course, the UK column has a history uh, with Ofcom and the issue of video sharing platforms. Uh, and it, well, before we get to that, I'll just, I'll just run through a, a little bit on this. So Ofcom is seeking views on proposed guidance to help providers self-assess whether they need to notify Ofcom on, as video sharing platforms under new statutory rules. Now, two key points there, self-assessment and notification. Keep that in mind for a little bit later. Uh, they say that video sharing platforms are a type of online video service which allows users to upload and share videos with the public. On the 1st of November 2020, the Audiovisual Media Services regulations came into force, establishing new rules in the Communications Act 2003 for UK established VSPs. Keep that in mind, Audiovisual Media Services and Communications Act 2003. We'll see more of that in a second too. Uh, and they say there are specific legal criteria which determine whether a service meets the definition of a VSP and whether it falls within uh, UK jurisdiction. VSPs are responsible for self-assessing whether they meet these criteria. Those who do not will be formally required to notify to Ofcom between 6th of April and 6th of May next year. Uh, so consultation with the uh, platforms, for example, Facebook and YouTube. But look, the history of this goes back to 2014 uh, with this uh, little organization, ATVOD. This was the authority for television and video on demand. Um, and well, they, uh, they contacted the UK column and they told us at the time that as a result of a statutory instrument amendment to the 2003 Communications Act, that we, the UK column, were required to notify ATVOD uh, that we were running an on-demand program service uh, whether we were required to pay out for a fee and that we were uh, required to submit to regulation. Um, now, uh, regulation based on whether or not they perceived that we were producing television-like programs at the time. Um, and, uh, and in several conversations between myself and uh, ATVOD representatives, uh, an ATVOD representative told me that there was no fixed standard for what constitutes television-like uh, video content and that their determinations are made purely on arbitrary opinion. That's the way it was at the time, but they wanted us to submit to regulation. And it was as a result of this uh, piece of uh, secondary legislation, the Audiovisual Media Services Regulations 2009. Now, these had been in place since 2009. ATVOD had already or had been for a long time saying that they wanted to regulate video content on the internet and they decided that they were going to use us as uh, one of the uh, sort of pilot schemes for, for everybody else. Uh, we said no. Uh, we shut down our, effectively shut down our, our uh, YouTube channel at the time as a result. Uh, and that caused such a furore uh, that ATVOD was out of business uh, within a few months, 12 months or so. And can we just qualify that comment you've made there, Mike, by saying that was overwhelmingly down to the, the good work of UK column viewers and supporters who got on the case. And not just UK column viewers and supporters, because it actually went much broader than that. People recognised the, the risk. Uh, now, ATVOD uh, then uh, pushed out a, a statement, uh, ATVOD's statement on UK column on the 3rd of July 2014, in which they argued that we had been misrepresenting their position. Uh, this was not quite the case, and uh, that, I think, is borne out by the fact that they disappeared. Uh, not very long after that. Uh, and uh, well, Ofcom have sat on this situation ever since. However, there is a new statutory instrument, which just by coincidence is also called the Audiovisual Media Services Regulations, but it's no longer 2009. It's now 2020. Uh, and uh, this is two, 2020 number 1062. Uh, and so the Secretary of State being a minister designated for the purposes uh, of section two brackets two of the European Communities Act in relation to information, society services uh, and measures relating to television broadcasting, blah, blah, blah. So this is the key point. Uh, this is not about UK legislation. This is about an EU directive and implementing an EU directive within weeks of us allegedly leaving the European Union. But we're 
don't worry, we're leaving the European Union, uh, but we're still implementing EU directives, even at this late stage. So what is Ofcom saying about this? Uh, here they are. What are the new regulations? So they're saying the 2018 revision to the Audiovisual Media Services Directive introduces a regulatory framework for a new category of service, video sharing platforms or VSPs. Now, this is an important point because whenever they were talking to me, uh, they were implying that the UK column was providing a video sharing service um, and that therefore we had to be regulated. They've, I argued that, well, we weren't. We were simply using a video sharing service, YouTube and others, Vimeo and so on, to share content which we produce, but we weren't providing the platform itself. Uh, and so they've clearly decided that they need to target those platforms rather than individual groups. Uh, they go on to say that uh, the government has transposed the VSP framework into Part 4B of the Communications Act 2003. This will come into force on the 1st of November 2020 and VSP providers will be required to comply with the new requirements other than the requirement to notify Ofcom and pay a regulatory fee from this date. So this is exactly the same agenda that Atfod was running back in 2014. The new provisions include a requirement to take appropriate measures to protect children from harmful content and to protect the general public from incitement to hatred and violence and from criminal content. Uh, they also include requirements related to standards around advertising. Uh, under the statutory framework, Ofcom must publish guidance on the measures available to VSP providers to protect users from harm. This guide sets out Ofcom's expectations for VSP regulation until further guidance on harms and measures is published next year. Uh, Ofcom plans to consult on this guidance early in 2021 and published by summer 2021. Ofcom has recently concluded a call for evidence to inform the, de uh, the development of this guidance. Uh, and they say Ofcom understands that the government's intention is for VSP regulation to be in place until such times as the new online harms regime comes into force. So this is an interim measure uh, until the government publishes its online harms legislation. We've been talking about the online harms legislation over the last few days. Um, now, what, how is a, a VSP defined? Uh, it's a service or dissociable section of a service in a VS, is a VSP of, uh, if the service or the dissociable section meets the conditions listed below, uh, and that is the provision of videos to members of the public in, uh, is the principal purpose of the service, uh, and the provision of videos to members of the public is an essential functionality of the service as a whole. Um, but don't worry, does this mean that you'll be censoring the internet? So Ofcom, this is a frequently asked question, will they be censoring the, off, the internet? No, they say. Our role is to make sure that the video service providers censor the internet. That's effectively what that says. The actual words are, our role is to make sure regulated services are taking the appropriate steps to protect users from harmful content such as incitement to hatred and violence. Uh, we'll be making sure the measure, uh, sorry, we'll be making sure the measures VSPs adopt to protect users are appropriate and proportionate. If they're not, we'll take action. Uh, but that is the key point, regulated services. So uh, David, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, this is uh, the updating of what they were attempting to do in 2014 and failed at that time. We've got to generate uh, some kind of opposition to this as well, because this is about shutting down free speech. Oh, for sure. And they've got a seven year age, so 2014, 2021, they're going to have another go. Um, and I, it was very striking, you were reporting, I think on Friday, that a senior Met policeman was, um, was making dark threats against um, people who have the wrong opinions and might express those wrong opinions, say about vaccines or COVID or COVID policy or the lockdown or masking or any of these things, because this is being portrayed as literally threatening lives. So they're, they're going to um, they're, they're going to have a grey area. They're going to put in some smoke here and obscure the distinction between maybe a jihadist video. Um, it, with instructions as to how to kill people um, and, and an ideological framework to justify the killing and someone with an opinion about, about government policy that doesn't suit the government. Uh, these things are both going to be portrayed as, as harmful and dangerous and threatening and, and we really need the, our wise overlords to, to, to stop this sort of thing. Um, 
So yes, censorship is coming. And that's a lot of people speak out pretty uh, pretty quickly. Just remind our viewers as well, of course, that on UK column we pointed out that uh, Ofcom was uh, running internal meetings where it was censoring out information from its own minutes so that uh, the public could see some of the content of a meeting, but they couldn't see other content, nor could they see who was actually in the meeting as a whole. We challenged them on this. And as a result of our investigations, we found out that in one meeting, uh, out of 10 people present, uh, the others were undeclared, they were secret, but out of the 10 people that were declared, some seven uh, were former BBC employees. And I think I'm correct in saying we will check uh, uh, this information because it was a little while ago, but uh, seven out of 10 were ex-BBC and six out of 10 were on BBC's um, pensions, um, some with spouses who were also on pensions. Uh, but when we started to dig for more information under freedom of information, they didn't want to play. They went secret. So when you come to Ofcom and you say, who are you dealing with? Well, it gets very, very interesting because now we have all sorts of secret interests and we have secret meetings, but we can show great affiliation with the BBC and the pension pot. Mm. Well, let's just bring in the Daily Mail here because it's uh, been fascinating to watch over a few days that uh, the Daily Mail has clearly been picking up on UK column reports about the truth of uh, COVID statistics. And uh, they printed this article. Uh, this was the, uh, let me get my glasses on here. This was the 20th of November. What they don't tell you about COVID, fewer beds taken up than last year, deaths a fraction of the grim forecast, 95% of fertilities uh, had underlying causes and how the facts can be twisted to strike fear in our hearts. Uh, I think that was fatalities. Fatalities, yes. I beg your pardon, fatalities. So um, we have um, an amazing response from the Daily Mail here, and they put a lot of, of detail in. But uh, the picture that I chose there, which is obviously one of their reports pictures, um, said this underneath. It was revealed this week that GCHQ has embedded a team in Downing Street to provide Boris Johnson with real-time updates to combat the emerging and changing threat posed by COVID-19. So we don't even know what the true statistics are, but we're bringing in GCHQ in order to make sure that uh, this isn't some huge plot. We'll come on to that in a minute, but praise for the Daily Mail, because if you read this article, it really got stuck into the information. And I wonder whether you knew where this sort of information had come from, Mike. Couldn't imagine, Brian. You couldn't imagine it possibly come from the UK column. Now, uh, why would we say that uh, we think the Daily Mail is benefiting from UK column broadcasts? Well, we can say with confidence, many years ago, 10 pages of a Saturday, Daily, uh, the Saturday Mail uh, covered the organisation Common Purpose, 10 whole pages. The bulk of that data came from the UK column. But on that occasion, um, they didn't give us a mention, but they were kind enough to send us a thank you letter. So let's just have a look at uh, the added bit of their report. Um, in the article, it said, what about its prophecies on deaths? Ditto, its warnings, this is government warnings, simply don't bear any relation to reality. During the Halloween horror show, press conference user of Sir Patrick and Chief Medical Officer Professor Chris Whitty to scare the government into implementing a second lockdown. One of their slides suggested that daily COVID deaths could reach 4,000 a day by December. And the no relation to reality bit is, is their own quote. That's not a UK column quote. Well, remarkably, this happened. Uh, if you can see the news amongst the online adverts, just to emphasise that point. Uh, but here's the mail having to defend itself with the headline, Big Brother Fury as the government uses Twitter as a propaganda tool to attack the mail's coronavirus analysis. Anger at attack from Department of Health and Social Care's Twitter account in an effort to rubbish the report. So suddenly the Daily Mail was getting a dose um, of the, the lash, the lashing whip that others get, and they didn't like it very much, but credit to them, um, inside they posted a lot of stuff from uh, social media, 
um, where it was showing the reaction from the Department of Health and Social Care to the Daily Mail. And it was also showing the fact, uh, sorry, I'll read that, the print's a bit small. Department of Health and Social Care, this article is misleading. This is a global pandemic. National restrictions have been introduced to keep people safe and save lives. Yawn. Um, but the mail was good enough to print responses from the public. So somebody here, Mike Graham, has said, please address why it's misleading. Are the figures for hospital beds wrong? Are the figures for death rates wrong, etc.? So the mail backing up the fact that the public asking the key questions and Carol McGriffin here says, McGiffin here says, how exactly? No, it's not a global pandemic. That's over. Also has nothing to do with keeping people safe and saving lives. And you know it. So um, I think that the Daily Mail may just justify a little bit of um, thank you and encouragement if they're starting to see the truth. Uh, no, David, uh, is there any truth coming out from the Scottish government? There is opinion coming out from the Scottish government and there's something which you might uh, regard as spin. Um, we have a little video. We'll let the viewers see that and then we'll have a chat. Do you stick to the rules or do you treat them with pals or when someone wants a hug? And what about not mixing with other households at home? Do you tweak that rule for birthdays or Friday nights? It's hard, but if we all put our own twists on the rules, they won't work. We all have to play our part to help stop the virus affecting our lives, our mental health, the NHS, and the people who work at businesses like mine. So, I thought that... I, I was just I going to say, you know, are, you, are you going to translate that for, for, uh, for, the for English people audience. in the south, south of England? Okay, right. So the suggestion is that um, we must have complete compliance because um, if we comply with the rules that are disrupting our lives, um, then that will stop the virus disrupting our lives. And then, the, the then go, there's then a list of, um, of things that you, you bad human being, uh, you bad Scottish person, uh, may have done that have not been in compliance with the government rules. And this is very, very bad because you must comply with the rules. And the first one that was listed, I thought was quite fascinating. Giving someone a hug. Someone wants a hug and you give them a hug. That's a bad thing because that's breaking the rules. And the rules won't work if you break them even a little bit. The, the, your compliance must be perfect, otherwise none of this will work. It's all your fault, um, Scottish people. Uh, it, it's not the government's fault. We're just doing what needs to be done. You're not listening. So hugging, bad. And then there's a list of the, the people that you're hurting with your hugging and you're seeing family members and, and, other, and other revolutionary acts like this. Um, and it's, it's hurting the NHS. And it's hurting businesses like mine says the young lady, and she points at her cafe, which is being boarded up. It's very sad. And, and it's clearly all the fault of the non-compliance from the Scottish public. That's the message from the Scottish government. Turns out, not very much of that is really true. Um, in fact, uh, it's been reported in The, the Telegraph and uh, on Yahoo here, the SNP has been accused of misleading the public with the use of a fake, a fake cafe in the COVID campaign. Because this is, this is a cafe being boarded up. It's called the Hilltop Cafe. Uh, and the, the thing about the Hilltop Cafe is it does not exist. And this woman who says a business like mine, she's an actor. She doesn't have a business. She's paid to say the words. And none of this is true. Um, the actual cafe uh, is in Leith because it's near, it's near where the Scottish government's based and obviously where they used to have a cup of coffee and they know where it is. Um, uh, but it's, it's actually been closed since March because of the COVID crisis and the government responds to it. So this is, a, this is a business that's probably not going to reopen, according to the owners, it's, it's not looking good, um, that's been closed by the government policy in March. And, and the government have hired the venue to put forward a complete pack of lies to tell 
the Scottish people that it's our fault that all these bad things are happening because we are not obeying enough. That's the message. You must obey. Um, so what's now, Mor uh, Morris Golden saying about it? Well, I just wanted to highlight the nature of the opposition. Now, as in England, it's the same in Scotland. In England, you've got uh, Keir Starmer, or Steer Karmer, as his colleagues apparently call him, uh, pretending to be the opposition. But he's not really opposing anything. He's really saying, well, the government's not going far enough. Here are the Scottish Conservatives, Maurice Golden, Scottish, Scottish Conservative economy spokesman, uh, talking about that, that advert. He says, many business owners across Scotland fighting to stay afloat and keep their staff on payroll have despaired that the SNP government's poor, patchy and delayed response to the pandemic. So it, you see what the opposition says. We must have more efficient tyranny. Uh, it must be more uniform. <laughs> it must be more rapid. And the problem with the SNP is they're just not oppressing you efficiently enough. That's the problem. That's the opposition line. And if you look at the Labour Party in England, that's their opposition line too. And if you swap the parties round and the other one was in power, I'm not sure it would make any difference right now. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, he's got such a lovely smile. I warmed to him the moment I saw the photograph, David. I'd like to take him <laughs> on a, uh, out for a beer in Glasgow, preferably after midnight. Okay. Right. Look, uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, uh, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. Uh, and there are options to help us out there. That'd be very much appreciated. Now, of course, uh, tears, uh, Brian, tears. Uh, we are heading back into a three-tier uh, system because after December the 2nd, it looks like we are uh, coming out of this current lockdown, at least in England. Uh, and uh, so what is changing? Well, uh, level one, if you are lucky enough to be in level one, which is medium, because there's no low again, um, then uh, all pubs and restaurants will be open, but they will, uh, oh, this sorry, this was before, uh, with the 10 p.m. curfew. Uh, there'll now be an 11 p.m. curfew. That's good, isn't it? So uh, there's been a change in the virus. The yes, virus has been given permission by mummy virus to stay to out later. for another hour, yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, rule of six is how it was, uh, but there may be uh, new rules on multiple households this afternoon. Uh, sorry, multiple households gathering. Uh, sorry, 15.30 uh, this afternoon is when we're likely to find out exactly uh, what's going to happen because Boris is going to be in the House of Commons to make a statement, apparently. Uh, I suppose it's unlikely he's going to be late for that. Uh, as he usually is for the live streams. But anyway, uh, let's see what happens if we get to high. Uh, if we get to high, uh, then obviously previously pubs were able to operate, uh, but households uh, were able to mix indoors. But pubs uh, will only be allowed to operate if serving a substantial meal. Well, that used to be the very high level. <laughs> That's now moving to high. Uh, and then when we get to heavy, very high, pubs will no longer be able to serve substantial meals they'll only be able to uh, uh give takeaway meals if they want to serve takeaway meals i'm sorry i have lost it on this yeah, news mic i, I, I have that, lost I it because we're, what we're reporting is, is so ridiculous is, is so ridiculous yes yeah. okay cinemas all well were allowed to open a tier three uh but gyms were shut in most cases um but for the new tier three apparently cinemas are going to close but gyms can stay open okay so so you can work out exactly what's going on. Now, I haven't heard any news on whether there's going to be a very, 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 very high uh, level four or not, tier four. This hasn't been, uh, nobody is talking about that at this stage. And certainly I haven't seen uh, any hint uh, from Boris that there may be a tier four. But David, um, can you explain, please, for our audience, because I'm not sure that I can, um, why under the previous tier three uh, cinemas could stay open, but gyms had to close. But under the more draconian tier three, uh, cinemas have to close, but uh, gyms can stay open. Well, it transpires that the gyms have actually quite good PR um, and a lot of support and uh, have been fighting in various places the completely unjustified close down of the businesses with some success and have gone all belligerent. So uh, the state is looking for an easier target, maybe one with less muscles and less fit. Um, 
for their Tears for Fears policy. I would also point out, Mike, that this Namby Pamby English three-tier system is something that, that Nicola will have no truck with. We have five tiers in Scotland, and don't you forget it, because it's better, uh, and uh, more, more oppression is better. And to, to provide additional clarity, uh, Nicola has numbered the five tiers, zero, one, two, three, and four. So the fifth tier is number four. Uh, I hope you're clear on that, Mike. Uh, absolutely clear on that. But uh, Nicola is also closing the borders. Nicola is. Um, so Edinburgh Live reporting here, it will now be illegal from, for people, people from England, Wales, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland to travel into Scotland for no good reason. Could you de define right? what no good sure reason what... means? Mm, we don't really define things too clearly because that, that would be... That would be uh, that would, I, I suspect, be just comedy gold if we try to define good reason. Uh, they continue, Scotland has closed the border to the rest of the UK, um, making it illegal for anyone from England, Wales, Ireland, Republic of Ireland to travel without reasonable cause. Scots also aren't allowed to travel to other parts of the UK under the new rules, which can see Brits illegally coming in and out of Scotland, hit with a £60 fine, actually. Uh, fixed penalty notice, um, not fine, but never mind. Uh, sorry, David, um, can I just interrupt are, are, are Scottish people not Brits? Clearly not. Uh, well, this is, this is one of the little, the little spins in there, yes. We're not quite sure what Brits are anymore. Uh, obviously, Scots people are Brits, and um, Edinburgh Live doesn't seem quite so sure. And obviously, the Scottish government has big problems with that concept. Uh, the new rules came into, into effect from 6pm on Friday um, and also made it illegal for people from tier 3 and 4 areas to leave the local authority unless it's for essential reasons. Now, Mike, I'm in a tier 3 area. What does that make me? I would say I'm now a prisoner um, and more on that in a moment. Now, it, it's worth just looking at the official ScotGov notice on this couple of things to point out here. So they're reporting travel between Scotland and the rest of the UK. Um, rest restrictions and advice on what you can do and where you can travel are also in place within England, Wales, Northern Ireland and other territories. Under current Scottish regulations, given the state of the epidemic in these countries, unless you have reasonable excuse, see exceptions, so there's a list, uh, you must not travel to, amongst other places, England. So there's a, there's a huge vagueness here between rules, regulations, advice, guidance. No one really knows. I, I would defy anyone to actually explain what um, is laughingly called law in this regard anymore. Nobody knows. So you, we're going to see individual police officers, individual state officials of all, of all types interpret these rules in accordance with their own psychological state uh, and predilections at the time, because there isn't any clarity on any of this. But there is an attempt to lock people in their own local authority areas. I'm in a, I'm in a level three area, and uh, the Scottish government tell me I cannot leave, I'm now a prisoner. Um, no. So I, I, I did think, well, I, I was quite fond of, of the prisoner as a, as a series when I was surprisingly young. Um, and uh, I, I did uh, nip into uh, to sort of see what was the what was some of the quotes from it, and uh, here's a little bit of exchange from from the prisoner. So he says, "Where am I?" Number two says, "In the village," uh, and he says, "What do you want? We want information." Well, that's very like uh, life in Scotland because the whole name person scheme was all about information. Whose side are you on? That would be telling, says number two. We want information, information, information. Now, that is also very like Scottish government because whose side are they on? Uh, they're not telling us. That is a secret. Uh, we're not allowed to know where the policies come from or who writes them. Um, so number six says, you won't get the information by hook or by crook. We will, they say. Uh, who are you? Uh, the new number two. Who is number one? And uh, number two replies, you're number six. Number six is, I'm not a number, I'm a free man. And he's, he's always struggling to find out who number one is. Now, under the COVID crisis in Scotland, we've gone a step further. We know who number one is. Yes. And number one is, of course, 
our dear leader, Nicola Sturgeon, because she's got she's even got it in the in her in her job title, first minister. So she's number one. We're all prisoners, and uh, I would like to say welcome to Scotland, but I'm afraid I I'm not allowed to anymore. Let's see. Yep, David, I'll just add to that, that of course the chaos so that people don't actually know what the rules say or the regulations say or the law says, this is, this is to cloud the public mind, which means that we're unsettled, we're unstressed and we're easily led in whatever direction they want to do. So we're laughing in the UK column studio at the madness of this stuff. But we understand that actually the techniques being used by the Scottish government and the Westminster government extremely dangerous and we'll talk about that a bit more but am I not correct in saying that uh, Nicola Sturgeon's policies is racist? Uh, well it's certainly introducing borders now that is one of the ironies of this is of course that uh, that uh, ideologically she's opposed to borders she wants open borders um, she says that being that having borders is racist she says that having borders around the UK is racist. And she says that not welcoming everyone to Scotland, everyone, the whole world, is all, they're all welcome to Scotland, is racist. But now um, we're preventing people going from Glasgow to Edinburgh because that would be a disaster and we'd all die of COVID. The degree uh, to which the, 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 the policy has, has reversed and based on nothing substantial is really striking. The point you made there, Brian, about the confusion being part of the plan is quite correct. It also means that people who are inclined to be afraid tend to be very afraid and are overreacting. And that promotes further strife and anxiety and conflict within the population. Yeah, and mental illness, depression and suicide, which of course both the Scottish Government and the Westminster Government hiding up the figures on that. Um, right, look, uh, we're rapidly running out of time, but we'll just uh, introduce policing. Uh, and of course, there were protests in Liverpool at the weekend. Uh, this is the Liverpool Echo. Live updates, arrests as anti-lockdown protesters march through Liverpool. Now, they were implying there were only about 200 of them. I'm not really sure exactly how many there were, but certainly the photographs look like there were significantly more than 200. Uh, the Independent perhaps gets the Propaganda of the Week Award, uh, of the Weekend Award, 15 arrested by police in another anti-lockdown protest uh, in Liverpool. And of course, the perception from this image uh, is that the young lady is uh, being aggressive here and that the police yeah. are being conciliatory. Uh, well, let's just, uh, let's just look at how conciliatory the police were uh, at that uh, protest and thank you very much to the person who sent this through to me uh, because this little bit of uh, video is just brutal as this policeman decides to get punch this uh, person who's on the ground in the head uh, pretty unpleasant again Brian uh, it seems that every time there is any kind of public order policing going on there is really brutal behavior from the police. Well, these, these are seriously damaged um, police men and some of the women as well. Um, we've put out a statement via the UK column uh, Twitter page saying that we recognize the police have a difficult job to do and in principle we support them, but we are seeing police behaving in a, in an, in a very uh, dangerous and brutal manner. Uh, that, of course, has come about via the reframing, the psychological reframing they've been subjected to during training courses. And, and much of that has been done without their knowledge or their consent. And we're going to talk more about this. So we're seeing police, particularly police men, unbelievably fired up, aggressive, brutal, attacking the public. That is because they've had their minds damaged by the uh, training that they've received. So uh, I would have thought that those officers, if they end up in, in, um, in court with a member of the public challenging them for their brutal actions, their next step, the next step of those officers should be to take their police authorities to court for the training that has put them in this pitiful me mental state. Mm. Well, we know what's coming in Demon and Cornwall because um, we've been led to understand um, that um, they've got some special measures for us. Now, I've titled this from cartoons to curfews because if you go on to the Devon and Cornwall police site, 
you are immediately faced with COVID and cartoons. It's not an accident because there's more than one of these things. Uh, but this is what we wanted to tell you. We understand that Devon and Cornwall Police are instigating COVID patrols with 10 dedicated police vehicles on Thursday, Friday, Saturday evenings. And that's going through until March 2021. Um, so we, we, we're going to put um, a pretty reasonable confidence on this uh, report. And of course, this shows us that whatever's going to happen over the Christmas period is going to be some sort of sop to the public. You'll be allowed to go out and do a bit of shopping. But otherwise, unless you're having a substantial meal or staying in England, you can't really do anything. So let's follow through the Devon and Cornwall police and see what they're actually up to. Well, the biggest thing they're doing is is encouraging people to spy on each other. So here's the tweet. If you have concerns uh, that your employer isn't uh, keeping your workplace COVID secure, uh, then report him. Uh, we've got this one here, which is concerned you've seen a gathering which contravenes the regulations. So you're going to be spying and reporting on your neighbours. This one here, visited a shop or business you think is fa failing its COVID responsibilities. You're going to report them as well. So this is straight out of East Germany. This is the Stasi. This is how it was done, getting people to report on each other. But it goes on. Uh, do as we say or you're in trouble. So we've got this one. Don't meet indoors with people. Um, the regulations are there to protect you, but you better obey them. Uh, this one, private gardens can't be used to meet people. Um, you better follow the restrictions. And staying at home isn't, isn't an excuse for a house party. Uh, so if you have people in for an overnight house party, uh, you're going to be fine. So we've got the spying combined with the threats. But this is all sold to an adult uh, public audience by cartoons, which is itself an attack on people's minds because we're not in a cartoon world, certainly not with Devon and Cornwall police. Here is the, I'm going to use the word brutal. This is a 19 year old girl. We know that this young lady was extremely scared. She was even more scared after spending 24 hours in police cell. Look at the officers um, holding on to her with their covered faces black. This is very nasty stuff. And, um, why are they arresting her? Well, she dared to challenge the British state in public. Um, but I came across this man as I looked through the Twitter feed for this. We've got uh, Chief Superintendent Steve Parker, who's apparently head of crime and justice with Devon and Cornwall Police. So presumably he's the man driving the show, which says if you're a 19 year old girl, you're equivalent to a terrorist. And we're going to pick you up with at least four or five mob handed police. And it's about to get worse. I think we've got a little video clip here uh, because as we investigated this, we came up with this. Um, well, we didn't. We saw this Devon and Cornwall police video, uh, which we'll show here. It's so utterly mind boggling. <laughs> If you're worried someone close to you is being radicalised, act early and reach out for help. We give advice and guidance, and together with other organisations, we can put the right support in place. Without it, your loved one could be drawn down a dangerous path, so we'll work to help them escape it. You won't be wasting our time, and if you act early, we can help before it's too late. If you're worried that someone you know is being radicalised, visit actearly.uk. So there we are, David. Uh, you don't know how to look after and help your loved ones. You simply go to Act Early and that team is going to look after them. Um, uh, I'll let you respond to that just a couple of seconds and then I want to show a bit more detail about what's really uh, under the surface of policing in UK. Well, just before David answers that, uh, yeah. Act Early, of course, is the website that was launched on Friday, or at least was highlighted on Friday, Friday. last week yeah. uh, or Thursday, whenever Neil Basu made the comments. So, so uh, David, thoughts? We, we know from so many cases that we've followed that the state and multi-agency approaches for the state um, being brought into family life often leads to disaster. 
um, that these organisations cannot be trusted. Uh, they are far from transparent. Uh, we do not know what they believe. We do not know how they will form judgments. And we, we, we do not know what they will do. I would caution anyone to think very carefully, very long and hard, before bringing that sort of power and giving it access to your family. What we have to find are ways where we can help one another, we can support one another, we can build and strengthen families and communities out with the oppressive arm of the state so that we have uh, means to sort our own problems without reference to the people who are uh, heavily armed and who are going to impose um, the most draconian rules upon us um, based on uh, whims and criteria that we cannot even imagine. Thank you for that, David. Let's just follow this through and see the response to the uh, Devon and Cornwall police tweets. And uh, what was really interesting to see is quite a lot of people had put UK column material back. Uh, so the one on the screen is here, radicalised by what exactly? And uh, then the police, of course, were being shown how brutal their own behaviour. That's being echoed back to them. And here we've got a Miss B, radicalised. You mean we know too much? Scared we spread the truth, stop the lies and stop the police violence, zero respect for you. And somebody saying prevent is a joke. So the public are responding and this is very good and it's very good to see measured responses. Um, what have we got here? Well, this one popped up in the chain and I took, <laughs> I took a look at it and I thought, am I really reading this? It's Sarah Trahern, SC Development Officer, and uh, what is this? Citizens in uh, Policing Development. Sorry, Citizens in Policing Development Officer. Uh, well, what is that? I had no idea, so I went having a look at it. Citizens in Policing is an umbrella term for, quote, over 500,000 volunteers who support the police either directly or indirectly. Over 500,000. I'm going to say this is the Stasi. So... Yeah, this is basic statistics. It's not quite right, but somewhere uh, about one in a hundred people now, apparently. Adults, I presume. Pardon? Adults. Adults, yes. yeah. Just over one in, it, it comes out as about one in a hundred and eight or something, but just over uh, one in a hundred people um, are now working for the police. So you don't know who you're dealing with in your community. This is how East Germany ran with the Stasi police. This is the kill key building blocks. Apparently they're using police support volunteers and special constables. The volunteers are now part of the police culture and are highly valued not only for the direct support they provide, but for the key links to the community. Always get in amongst the community to spy, to see what people are doing. Well, why would, sorry, why would police support volunteers need to be vetted? Oh, well, because they're obviously they are, they are obviously using them not only to put the information into the police might, but they're obviously being fed information that the police would regard as sensitive, mm -hmm. and they're vetting. But you vet people normally to make sure they're going to be loyal. They haven't got any dirty secrets in their background. That's that's what military vetting was about. Um, but of course, you you also want to know any d dirty little secrets so that you can pressurise people. So there we are, police sport volunteers and special constables. Uh, additional support to the Citizens in Policing programme includes volunteer police cadets and neighbourhood and home watch. So you think the little stickers in somebody's window saying they're part of neighbourhood watch is an innocent thing. No, no, no. This is part of a big state surveillance system. And this is the main benefits of citizens in policing to the, to the police forces. Greater community involvement in policing, increased support for neighbourhood policing, giving communities a voice and an opportunity to share responsibility for community safety outcomes. This is all 1984 language. Great additionality to manage demand. And this one, information and intelligence exchange between agencies and communities. So that's what they're really after. This is getting the police in amongst local people right down at local community level. And they're going to be spying on what you're doing. 
Um, come back to your act, which you've just mentioned, the, the Action Counters Terrorism Organization. Do have a look at this website. It is horrific. Um, real stories. Other people and their families have gone through similar experiences. These are real examples of people we've helped. And uh, here's John. John was often in trouble at school for low-level disruption. That sounds like this is an attempt to brand him at school as a terrorist because he was disruptive. And it goes on that John has written a letter to himself. This is what he would have liked to say to his younger self. Dear John, it's hard for me to write this letter as there are so many things I want to say uh, to the me I was back then. Uh, David, again, very quickly, this is applied psychology. If John is real, they've been attacking his mind with almost regression in order to reframe him. This is, I, I'm not allowed to use this word dangerous, but I've run out of terms to say um, what, what is going on here. It, My goodness. It's... It is psychological manipulation there's also a kind of quasi religious element to that that's you know i i have i have um seen the light um i'm following the path of righteousness now and i'm i'm going to i'm going to explain to my my former self um how how this is done and there is an element which is is kind of quasi religious coming into all of this um and also there's an element of comedy uh, police academy 4 was citizens on patrol Right, we're we're actually getting quite close to that, only without the laughs. Yeah. Okay. Well, I thought I, I I thought I would just try and bring some of this together uh, on screen. A comment is your phrase. You've used this this excellent phrase that we've got a government of occupation. Um, let's just have a look at what we know. We know that the cabinet office is centred to it. We know that the MPs have now become made, they they're becoming relevant. So they're kept in the dark. They're utterly ignorant about what's going on. They've been sidelined. Uh, we've got a fusion of the parties. You, you've indicated this a bit earlier in the news today. So there is no opposition. There is no difference between the Conservatives and Labour Party or really the SNP. They're all working together under a veneer of difference. Um, we've got a, a built-in collaboration unit and we know that we're looking at about 14,000 people uh, working as a, as a private army for the, for the um, cabinet office. We've got the behavioural insights team pumping in the applied behavioural psychology, the brainwashing, that's what's doing the damage to the police. Uh, we've got the counter disinformation unit, which you mentioned on Friday, Mike. Uh, we've got the rapid response unit, which again you mentioned on Friday. Uh, we know that GCHQ has now been brought into central government instead of being an, uh, an arm's length organisation with some separation of powers. So GCHQ is now in the mix. We've got 77 Brigade in to spy on the public and disrupt actions by the public. That's been stated uh, in uh, mainstream media. We've got 13th Signals Regiment there on intelligence gathering on the public. They've been brought in centrally. Now we've got citizens in policing. And again, you mentioned on Friday, big society. And although that was started under um, Tony Blair, uh, Cameron continued it. It's still in existence with the aim of 100,000 engaged citizens. Uh, the Foreign Office is busy putting out counter disinformation and you pointed out that even though it's the Foreign Office, their propaganda is coming back into UK, usually under the guise that uh, whatever's happened is the fault of the Russians. Um, and we've got a cabinet officer in bed with transnational corporates described as a cartel. We've got the international hedge funds and the banks. We've got the big businesses and big pharma. And now we're using Google and Facebook to actually clamp down on anybody um, in the public who is putting out the truth. I don't know what else to add to that. It's pretty clear to me we're, we are in a dictatorship. Mm. David. To add, one, one thing to add, and it's an important thing to add, it's not British, it's foreign, or rather it's global. If you, if you go to Ireland and you describe this system, they will recognise it. The Republic of Ireland. 
You go to Germany, people will recognize it. Canada, America, Australia, people will recognize it. This is emerging all around the globe in the, quote, free Western countries in particular. Um, it's uh, global in reach. It's global in reach. Totally agree with that. And I think we'll be speaking more about who these people are. But internationalist is a very good uh, description. We've run out of time, so we'll end there. I just wanted to end on a positive note. We've been sent by several people this newspaper, The Light, which is being put out um, certainly in the West Country. It's got some really excellent articles in. And uh, one of the key ones here, I don't know whether it appear on screen, but there's nearly a full page talk, talking about the government's behavioural insights team and reframing of the population. And of course, if there's going to be censorship of the internet, we're going to need to get the message out by every means possible. So well done to that team. And I hope there's more. Yeah, absolutely. Now we had uh, a couple more items to cover. We're going to cover those on the extra programme for our members. So uh, keep an eye out on that uh, on the UK Column website later on. OK, we'll end there. We'll say you are allowed to laugh at what's going on because much of it is laughable and humour is good. But remember underneath it, the agenda these people are trying to bring in is very dark and it needs to be stopped. We'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye. bye.